Today on the Russia's World, we have a very special guest, Jorge Ulnik, um, who is the recipient of the Sigourney Award uh, uh, this year. And uh, congrats. And uh, uh, welcome to Russia's World. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm very happy to be uh, in this podcast and this famous program. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I would like to get started with if you can just introduce yourself. Um, how would you describe yourself in, in brief terms? What would you say? Well, I'm a doctor, a physician, but dedicated to psychoanalysis and psychiatry. But the subject that uh, from the very beginning I was interesting uh, about is the, the psychosomatics. So my question always is why people get sick? apart from the bacteria or the physical uh, etiologies or causes. And um, usually when we learn to listen and to be close to the patients, we understand that diseases appear intertwined with life events and emotions. So I dedicated all my career to psychosomatics. Inside psychosomatics or within this subject, um, the destiny of who knows what uh, leads me to the skin. And I started working with skin patients in a discipline named psychodermatology. In psychodermatology, uh, psychotherapists work together with dermatologists and professionals dedicated to the skin. Uh, but I am a psychoanalyst, so the, the difference between other uh, psychiatrists working with skin patients is that uh, I believe that there are unconscious factors that influence or take part in the evolution in the uh, medical response of the diseases to the treatment, or there are some trigger factors that appear in these kind of problems. So, uh, well, I started working at, in, at the hospital in the liaison psychiatry, which means the psychiatry uh, dedicated to consultations that all the different specialists, medic doctors that work at the hospital sometimes ask for help to a psychiatrist that, uh, with the aim to work together to help patients. And I learned a lot of interdisciplinary teams uh, in which I worked and especially with skin patients. Uh, I'm a well, fan of interdisciplinary studies and connecting things, and especially psychoanalysis. I think the connection, it can be applied to, to anything, whether it's arts, literature, movies, as well as philosophy, as well as medicine. And for me, a great game changer was when I read uh, Susan O'Sullivan's book. She's a neurologist. She wrote a book, It's All in Your Head, and she wrote about psychosomatic disorders. And that was a game changer for me, the importance of the relationship between the mind and body and the importance of really understanding the root problem of one's physical disease. And it often it's not physical, it is psychological as with psychosomatic <laughs> diseases. And it changed my perspective. 
And it's actually quite common because they say a lot of people who go and see their family physician, uh, they are uh, most likely suffering from psychosomatic diseases, but they're not uh, treated as such. And they're also afraid of accepting that because they say, what are you saying? I am a crazy person. There's that stigma attached to it. So I love it that you as a physician are bridging those two together and combining them. And, uh, and this is what the award is about too, of like uh, bringing psychoanalysis to all the other disciplines that, that, that fit in with it. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you, um, you have said something very common and very important in the clinic which is that uh, patients, when they are referred to a psychoanalyst or to psychotherapy, they feel that they are treated as a second-class patient, not a first-class one. And they feel like a passenger that enters to, into a plane and the first part of the path, the narrow path to go to the seat, first pass through the, the business class, watching the big chairs and comfortable uh, places in which the, this patient or this passenger will not be placed. He has to go through this place and to the ordinary chairs. So when the patient goes to a specialist and he or she refers the patient to a psychotherapist, Usually, the patient changes the dermatologist. No, not, he or she doesn't go to the psychotherapist. They change the dermatologist and sometimes feel offended because uh, feel uh, treated as a crazy person. So the first thing that we, the psychotherapists, should do is not expecting, not waiting the patient to come to us but we go into the patient and, for example, in a clinic or at, in a hospital, go into the dermatology service to work in that place and uh, trying to transmit to the patient that all of us, you and me and everyone we know, we are skin patients. No one is safe to have a pimple or acne in the youth or, a, for example, hair loss or a blister or anything that are very common uh, sufferings or little problems of, of the skin. So all of us are skin patients. But what means to be a skin patient? Well, to be a skin patient means, first of all, to feel marked, like having a stain or a mark, and feeling uncomfortable. Why? Because having a problem on the skin is like wearing a suit or, or something or an outfit that is itchy or is or doesn't fit because it's very short or it's very large or has a hole. Many things that affect at least two things. One, the own image. And second, the sensation of being us, being ourselves. Because 
every stain, every lesion, every, for example, scale or redness uh, affect our image and makes us to feel that we are not uh, ourselves. And we become an object of the gaze of others. So the next sensation very common is not only to be to feel marked or uncomfortable, but to be seen. And if the sorry, if the skin is a big disease, is a for example a very severe skin disease, the sensation is to feel given to be seen. So to feel to to be in front of millions of eyes. And I, I think it's very fascinating. And for me, I did not really think about skin and psychoanalysis. So I am impressed that you combine them. But when I thought about it, it makes perfect sense. And so just the idea of face too, is it's quite interesting that our face is unique. And that's what we are showing and projecting into the world. And uh, there's also the changes of now, mostly also through technology. So we see each other but uh, we lack the, the human touch. And if we look at in terms of, of language that shows here ideas of skin, or for example, stay in touch, losing touch, like there's a lot of language that's connected to it. Shedding your skin, or again, scarred for life, we say, and that's exactly what you're talking about, that kind of mark on your face, or like Cain's kind of uh, mark in the, in the Bible, who's like scarred for life. And it is so important, the, uh, our face. And um, how has that, uh, how does, uh, again, affect people? The, the, again, like you're saying, the gaze of the others and the, the um, awareness, self-awareness of the face itself, which is skin, exactly. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, um, for, you mentioned the, the actual situation in which we are losing the contact or the touch because of the COVID pandemic uh, and because the, the World um, Health as a, uh, Organization uh, advise us to avoid contact and to maintain a preventive distance among us or between each other. Uh, and the point is that if we are not touched, we replace our touching with our eyes. So uh, we looked at whatever we can't touch because the vision uh, elongs or make longer the re to, to reach what we can't reach with our skin. But if we can't touch, we uh, overcharge the gaze and we become more and more images and we uh, develop more the drive. Freud mentioned the importance of drives and we have a touching drive but we also have a, a drive to see. So caused by this problem, we overcharge the drive to see in the place of the drive to touch. And 
we become a, a human being or uh, we feel our existence if we are seen. And we uh, spend all the time in front of the screen, in front of the cell phone, the iPad, Instagram, videos. So, so I appreciate a lot that you develop so much the podcast because the podcast permits us to exist through the what we call the audience. So uh, it's an auditive um, link. And this is uh, very important. For example, as I am a psychoanalyst, we the psychoanalyst tried with, with skin patients to cancel a little bit the pregnancy or the, the predominance of the image and to recover the contact by the sound, by our voice. For example, if a patient comes and tries in the first moment of the consultation to show, I usually tell, well, show to the dermatologist. This is very important. The dermatologist needs to see your lesions but here with me, uh, try to talk. I will listen to you. Then if you want, you show, but first talk. And then no one tries to show after talking. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. So we change the channel as in a train. Uh, when we travel by train, there is a machine or a controller that uh, switches uh, something that change the channel, the you know, the path of the of the train, of the wagons. It reminds me also the original conception that Freud had of like being on the couch and it's the voice that they would hear and not again the exactly. visual contact, like you're exactly. saying. I want to get back to the face too because there are two things I want to mention and talk about here. One, the face is a screen because it's a screen of our emotions. And so when people say they don't believe in mind-body relationships, I say, well, what happens when you're ashamed, when you're happy, when you're excited, when you're stressed, when you're scared and our skin color changes? And, yes. Uh, so that's that's one screen. But then it's also people trying to change that screen and manipulating it by, in a way, putting on makeup, which is a natural form, but also changing like the lighting, changing things, photoshopping on uh, on social media. So um, that idea of uh, the face as a screen. What would you say about that? How would what would you comment on this this idea? Well, um, I in some of my lectures or classes, I mentioned that the, the self, the, the self, the body image is composed by many things. One is the sense of perception, the physical sense of perception. For example, uh, we have receptors of the position of the body in the space. Uh, we have even Little, little, very little stones in the ear, inside the ear, that uh, gives us information of the position of the head in the space. And when they are out of place, we suffer from dizziness. Uh, well, so sense of perception is one of the elements. The other one are the words. 
because when we are babies, uh, our mother especially uh, teaches us to talk and we learn, listen to the mother, we learn uh, the words. And at the beginning, we um, only know how to speak two or three words and we name all things with one or two words. Uh, but progressively, we are acquiring more and more vocabulary. And the third element is the image, especially the face, especially the face. And, and uh, the image um, should be similar to us. Um, for example, one of the problems with the skin diseases is that the lesion, the red lesion, or the, 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 the shape of the lesion uh, makes the other no similar. We can't be, we can't mirror ourselves when the image of the body of the other is completely different. We say in, people say, not the doctors, but ordinary people say, that someone is in a alive flesh. I, I don't know in English, how do you say, but in, in Spanish is carne viva. Mm -hmm. Yeah, flesh, yeah, yeah, I think that's the closest. Because, because it's the flesh without the cover, mm -hmm. which is the skin. No? Well, but the problem is that the three elements that I have mentioned should be combined, making a whole, which is our symbolic mirror. But if they are not well combined, for example, because uh, the mother was not a good translator of our primitive words or sensations, or if the face of our mother doesn't fit, doesn't correspond to our emotions. So for example, she's angry or she is um, uh, with a psychopathology or she uh, fears something and has a face of terror. Um, the babies or the little children uh, mirror this image and they consider always that this is caused by themselves. So if my mother has a terror face, maybe I'm dangerous, or maybe uh, I'm bad in some sense. Um, so the reflex of the faces uh, plays an important role in the composition of the body image. Well, but if the words or the, capabil the capability of integrate and feel their own sensations is uh, diminished or is uh, with some problem, somatic problem or, or psychological problem, we try to recover and to, to have existence and to be ourselves only um, linking with only one of the three elements, not words, not sense of perception, only image. And I saw, I usually use 
many advertising of laboratories that promote some creams and products to dermatologists because I go to the dermatology congresses and I spend a lot of time in the kiosks, in the stands of the laboratories watching the advertisings because they emit messages together with, with the drug, together with the product. And for example, there is one that says, image is everything. And I usually end my lectures showing this because the, the advertising says, image is everything, showing a very beautiful young woman. No? So I show this, and then I show the image of the football player Beckham. Beckham is a famous soccer player, English one. And the sentence in this image is, nothing is impossible. So I say, if image is everything and nothing, nothing is impossible, what can we do when we um, have a problem or something that is impossible for us? Because we all know that many things are impossible. We are not omnipotent. So if something is a problem for us and image is everything, what can we do? What can we do if our image is, uh, this is distorted by a pimple or an acne or the hair loss? So the only solution is another advertising which shows a man which is hiding inside a shell. So is, if image is everything and nothing is impossible. The only way to survive is to make a shell, to make an armor uh, and to be a sort of knight, but a knight hidden inside the armor. So in, in, in we see that it changes and what you're saying is, is, is absolutely true. And the image of what is beautiful changes, the image of what is accepted, it changes. So in the past, we would say pale people, that is something you want to have. And it's like white skin, but then you look at no beauty is to have uh, dark tones of skin or to be uh, uh, suntanned. And so, so that changes also in terms of the body. Uh, what are we looking for? A beautiful image. And it was be, would be a plumper woman in the past and now more skinny. And that is something that's happening. And I think that is a real problem because we are projecting things into the world that is not us. And that when you talk about not correspondence, so that people in social media give this impression of a happy family when inside, when you go into the room in the real life is not happy at all. And Inside the house is the skeleton in the car. Exactly. And we fall for this because we take it at face value. This is another expression with face. We take it at face value because we think this is the real image. And because image is everything, we take it as absolute truth, but it's not at all. Well, if you give me the time, I can give you an, a movie and an example taken from a movie, which is very popular. So maybe- oh, yeah, that's it. I love movies. The movie is not an intellectual one, not a philosophical one. It's a movie, it's a thriller with Sylvester Stallone. Uh, 
<laughs> in Spanish, it was called uh, total risk, but in English, it was another title. Uh, it, it is about um, uh, people who climb mountains and they have to go from a high mountain to another one uh, uh, in an harness and hanging from from a cable from a wire no mm -hmm. and uh, one of them is a man who has a problem in the leg and but he has a beautiful girlfriend no and the girlfriend is with Sylvester Stallone and she has to cross the abai between one risk to the other. And Sylvester Stallone says to her, look at me, look at my face, be sure, be calm, there is no danger, but there is a very deep abai in, <laughs> in, este, under her body. No? And she fears a lot, she's very scared. But he insists, look at me, look at me, look at my face. She starts the, the process, no? and in the middle, the harness fails, and she ends uh, hanging from the belt in a very unstable situation and very near to fall and die. And it is very interesting how the face of Sylvester Stallone changes. And he start, starts to sweat, to sweat, I sweat, yeah. to sweat. Mm -hmm. And the face of his is inverted because he starts to go to rescue her. Mm -hmm. And finally, she starts to fall and he tries to take her from the, uh, using his uh, hand in which he has a globe, but progressively, very slowly, the globe is going out his hand and finally she falls and die. And this is in the beginning of the film and all the, the, uh, the spectators are surprised because an, a North American movie doesn't <laughs> doesn't go like this with with the failure in the beginning and the beautiful girl dies no but it shows how there is a connection between the image of the face and the attachment of the hand so the 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 eyes and the skin and then I think the film is called Cliffhanger. Exactly, Cliffhanger, exactly. Yeah. And this actually, is what, what it brings to mind another film I've seen that really moved me and uh, actually affected me, which I found was a true horror film, was uh, Pedro Almodovar's The Skin I Live In. The Skin ah, I yes, Live In. yes, and yes, so yes. For me, that was terrifying. Like, they make horror movies, but the real <laughs> horror is what he's presenting there, that somebody else's skin altogether. And so... I found that fascinating and again, truly scary. And I think a lot of people are doing that in a way. This is their life. And I was wondering also what you think about tattoos, people who get tattoos. What's the drive for that? Is that a drive for a change or, or what would you say about tattoos? In well, general? two things. Uh, 
first Almodovar, then the tattoos. Yeah, I yeah. made a, I made an edition of Almodovar's films because mm -hmm. Almodovar has a huge material, a huge stuff uh, to work the relationship between the skin and the psyche. Mm -hmm. And in the skin I live in, which is what is very interesting is that the doctor who is a psychopath, the, the doctor, yes, Antonio yeah. Banderas is yeah. the, the actor. He is a, a person who was cheated on his identity because his mother gave him to another mother and she told that he that she was the, the maid, not the mother of his. Mm -hmm. And also he has a brother who was uh, not recognized and he has a morning, not processes morning with his wife that uh, died in an accident. So he tries to solve all this trauma producing an, in, an um, super skin, a skin that protects from everything. Uh, I no how do you say in destruct undestroyed skin impossible to destroy yeah, yeah. indestructible yeah indestructible skin so it shows a very common mechanism of using the skin as a result of a not elaborated trauma and and mourning process <clears throat> well and now about the tattoos people uh, well first of all uh, tattoos are not bad no, I don't think that tattoos is a symptom of uh, psychopathology no could be a fashion could be a way to show could be a, a, an art a, an art production so there are many ways to interpret and to consider the tattoos and it's not the same a person who tattoos a butterfly, a little butterfly in the shoulder, or a person who tattoos the complete body. It's not the same. So we can't generalize tattooed people as if they were all a consistent and homogeneous group. But for example, uh, once there was a burn uh, in, in a discotheque in Buenos Aires in which a lot of young people died, completely burned. And the relatives of them, many of them, decide to tattoo the name of the dead relative. And when uh, uh, there is an anthropologist that dedicated her, her thesis about the survivance, the, the people who survived and the relatives of the victims of this accident. Um, and uh, this anthropologist found that the, the people who survived said, I can't tell in words what happened. So I was there, I saw there, I tried to rescue my relative, my son, my daughter, my siblings, 
I couldn't, but I want to tell the world forever what I feel and what happened there. So my tattoo narrates, it's a narrative that narrates what happened there forever, everywhere, and to anyone who wants to read or to listen or to see the tattoo. So the tattoo has is a part of a chrono uh, role it's, it's because it is maintained forever. That's it, yes. The second is that the tattoo narrates something. Mm -hmm. It tells, it says something. And uh, it's something that the owner of the tattoo the, can't say with words. But when we talk about skin disorders, this is not normal, this is a pathology, but always sometimes is a way to narrate something that doesn't have words to be narrated, to be told. Um, there is a song of Annie Lennox mm -hmm. uh, that I like a lot, and she says that children are longing for love, uh, but they, sometimes they ask for something that can't be told. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, they tell that this with redness or with modifications of the skin or crying, no? Well, so, well, I think that tattoos are a transitional or a, something that is in the middle of the a physiological reaction of the skin and the pathological lesions of the skin. The tattoos are in the middle. Mm. Sometimes are very healthy and sometimes are not. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the two things about tattoos that uh, fascinated me in a way, and um, one of them is the, the permanence, because you say it's something that's permanent. And for me, that is scary, because if that is how I'm feeling now, and what if I change? Because our, I think our personalities change. I'm not the same person I was before the pandemic. I shed my skin. I got rid of my skin. I'm a very different person than I was a couple of years ago. But the second thing is also the uh, on the skin itself, the effects that the, the ink using the ink, something that's permanent, the, uh, the cutting, does that have a negative effect on the skin? Does, uh, are there any like um, side effects related to dangers as well, related to having a tattoo? Well, uh, actually a tattoo is an injury to the skin. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when you tattoo your skin, you, you damage your skin. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's like a scar, for example. Uh, but well, the same happens when we put an ear in the, uh, in a the little area. girl, no? yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a damage to, to the ear, but tolerated or accept, socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they accept the uh, social acceptance uh, plays a role, an important role in many things. Because if you go to the, I don't know, in Africa or in primitive or 
tribes that they make a lot of tattoos or modifications on the skin and it's completely accepted uh, instead of being a damage to the skin. And, and we see that shift too, because it's like before it was tattoos, criminals have tattoos, and now it's, as you say, it's become more socially accepted. So these exactly. trends also go with the time. So what might have been seen as something that would be considered disorder years ago is seen as perfectly acceptable now, and it yeah. should have been perfectly acceptable to begin with in many cases. <laughs> well, originally, only sailors and, yes. and people in jail uh, had tattoos because they miss their loves, their loved ones, mm -hmm. or the places in which they are. They were only for a while, and they want to. They, they search the, the the permanency. They reach the permanency through the tattoos. When they uh, well, well, in, in, in actually, everyone wants the permanency of the loved one. For example, children want the permanency of their mother when they are very little ch children. And, and they suffer when the mother goes to work or go out or, or goes to the bed to, to sleep with the, their husband and not with the baby. Uh, we have to learn that things are temporary. Even life <laughs> is temporary. It's a pity, but life is temporary. Yes, there's, there's not much we can do. But going back to the um, technology and kind of skin together, the idea of avatars, what do you think of an avatar skin? Because we call it a skin too. And so do you think that, um, um, how does it affect people? Is it like part of their, the avatar that they choose? Would that give us a lot of clues about their, their personality, who they would like to be? Or do we get a lot of information from what avatars they, they choose in say games or video games and so on? Is ah, the avatars in games. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, um, the, the avatar, Freud uh, wrote an article about the, what he called the doubles. The doubles. The avatar is a double mm -hmm. of the person, mm -hmm. and the double just uh, plays a role in the sensation of um, um, permanency or fini finitude. Is correct the the word finitude? Finite. Endiness. Endiness. Yeah. yeah. To end. Things are yeah finite. Things are finite. They will have a finish. They will have an end. Finite. Fine, finite. finite. Yeah. Like infinite and finite. Okay, so um, uh, what Freud said is that uh, we have a love for ourselves called narcissism. And the narcissism that comes from the very beginning is threatened by the real life because the real life, starting with the negative of parents, when, the, when our parents say no, don't do that. If, if you do that, you will be punished. So it affects our narcissism because we can't do whatever we want. But if we build a double, the double can. The double can is a superhero or could be a killer or has 10 lives. 
and we can lose one, two, three. It doesn't matter because the, the avatar has more lives. <clears throat> I, I love that. I think that that's absolutely fascinating. I, I, when I'm thinking of double two, I'm thinking about what, how we're wearing masks now, and that's become commonly accepted. But when I was thinking about masks, it used to be bank robbers, but it's also superheroes. So you have that, that double of like people wearing a mask either to hide their identity because they're criminals or to hide their identity because they're superheroes and they don't want to be found out. And even now, when I, when I wear a mask in a bank, I, I feel self-conscious because that's not, if I did that three years ago, it was seen as odd and maybe they would even alert the police. Why is this person wearing a mask? But yes. now, it, it, if you're not wearing it, that's when they alert the police. So it's, it's kind of interesting how, again, things change and our perception of masks change in, in, in different settings now. Yes, in the future, it's a very interesting subject of research, mm. how wearing masks will affect the development of the body image in the new generations, mm. because babies are watching their mothers with masks, and they go to the children's garden with masks. So in a place where they learn how to interact with, uh, with uh, pairs, Peers. Mm -hmm. Peers, yeah. With peers, uh, the peer, uh, is, the image of the peer is uh, hidden under the mask. Yes, yes, it's a very Even interesting in, in subject. Our, with adults, a conversation, when I'm wearing a mask, I, I tell people I am actually smiling right now because, <laughs> but, I, but I'm wondering like how we can, we can maybe like become more perceptive because we will focus maybe more on the eyes. And so the expression of the eyes, and we can get through the glass, we can get the information, this person is joking, or this person is happy or is smiling. Do you think there could be some sort of like ability that will develop, maybe with kids too, where they would not focus so much on the face, but like specifically the eyes, which is not covered? Yes, but the problem is that it's a fragmented image, yes. because uh, the the... Um, we should be more and more a person who guess, who adivinar. I don't know yes, the. Yeah, that's guess. To guess. To guess. To guess, to guess what the other person is feeling mm -hmm. or is watching. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's we are prepared genetically to recognize the expression of some emotions, but without a mask. <laughs> the the new generation should learn how to recognize the emotional expression of the others uh, with a mask only looking at the eyes and yes yes I, I, and, and it will reinforce the problem of being worried about the face uh, for example sometimes i say that the better business in the world is selling what is useless um, for problems without solution. So, for example, for example, aging is a problem without solution. So you could be rich selling products anti-age <laughs> which they do it's, and, it's and a lie the it's a lie these are placebos and you put it on yeah. and you think it makes no, you maybe maybe you will acquire a better image but not less 
ages. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we can't escape that. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, I think, I think these are these are just fascinating discussions, and it, it shows again that relationship between the mind and the body, and also our past with our present. So how the influence of the past, and as you're saying, as as a child growing up, and they also use the sense of touch too as as part of their communication because learning of like you know touching things and putting things in their mouth and feeling it, and then uh, moving on to the, the the facial recognition. And one of the things that really fascinated me was a series called lie to me which talks about nonverbal gestures and so on body language that shows when a person is lying and uh, that's also facial expressions by uh, Paul Ekman uh, who did the, the research on that and it is fascinating because now I've been applying it to people when I see uh, people on television politicians are speaking and I look for those signs it's like oh this person is lying and this person <laughs> is not telling the truth or even at work and you, and it's I think it's a superpower that we can gain by being more perceptive. And I'd like more people to, to investigate that because that screen that we see, the facial expressions are often deceiving. Many people are, are dishonest. And that would be a way of breaking that, that deception by having knowledge about uh, deception and lies and so on. The revival of the lie, lies detector. Do you yeah. remember the, the machine that yeah. detects lying? Uh, well, but the, the point is not only the gestures or the face. For example, one thing that appears in first line uh, caused by the COVID problem uh, is the, the proximity. There is an anthropologist also who worked with the idea of nonverbal communication between human beings through the proximity. For, for example, he divided the proximity of people in four categories, and one is the public uh, distance, the other is the intimate distance, the other is the work distance, and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, well, the point is that caused by the pandemic, the proximity of people has changed because you can't be so close and to, to others, even if you love them. So uh, the closeness is modified. And, and, um, and returning to the skin, uh, I studied in a research, the alteration of the proximity um, values or the proximity conception among skin patients. Because when someone has a skin disease, the people automatically think that it, this is contagious. And as they fear the contagious, they take distance. And sometimes it's the self, the own patient who maintain an excessive distance in order to not being rejected because from if he or she are more close, the lesions or the problems in the skin will be more uh, easily detected. So they live, we all live with a sphere of, it's an imaginary sphere that expands or shrinks depending on the relationship that we are establishing at that at any time. Well, but 
some people caused by their disease has a more expanded sphere of distances to the others and some on the contrary uh, look for closeness in, uh, because they need touch yeah. And it's, it's also a cultural factor too, because I mean, Latin cultures you usually go closer to others, and so I think it affects them even more because it's something that you used to do, but now you can't. Whereas in in, in other cultures, it is okay. We always have distance, exactly, uh, exactly. Uh, that, and that touch again, greeting each other with a touch or a kiss is not something that we practice as much. But one thing I do miss is uh, is hugs. And that is something that is becoming more difficult to do. And who knows how it will be. I remember two years ago when the pandemic started, researchers were saying, psychologists were saying, we'll see what impact it has on our behavior. But if it's only short term, if it's a few months, it won't have a lasting impact. But now it's been over two years and it's continuing. So I do believe it will have a lasting impact on our psyche and that our children will also carry this into the future for better or worse. But in, in this case, I think we will miss out on a lot of contact with others and will become perfectly acceptable to have a distance with another mm -hmm. person. Yes, yes, yes. Well, for example, you know better than me, maybe that, for example, the proximity uh, measures or standards, uh, they are not the same in Mexico than in USA. And they change because we are different cultures, no? Um, um, before ending, I, I would like to say something. I, I don't know if this is edited. Sure, go or, ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because when you ask me about myself, I, I would like to say that I belong to the uh, Argentine Psychoanalytical Association. Uh, the, in Spanish, is Asociación Psicoanalítica Argentina. And I am professor at the, uni at the University of Buenos Aires in the psychology school and in the medicine school. And the Sigourney Award, <clears throat> probably they uh, honored me with the prize. <clears throat> First, because I uh, um, developed the, the, the utility, the the appropriate place of psychoanalysis in the medical field, because I work at the hospital or in my office together with uh, doctors that usually they don't work with psychoanalysts, mm -hmm. only with psychiatrists. And it helps a lot millions of, of people because when, as we told me at the beginning, uh, when the dermatologist says you have to go to a psychotherapist, if the psychotherapist is only a psychiatrist, he will give you a medication. And these kind of patients don't want to, to take medications. They, they feel that medications will have adverse effects or that he or she are treated as a, as a, a psychiatric patient. Maybe they associate, no, this medication is taken by my Alzheimer grandmother or the depressive uh, cousin that, that uh, is very depressive. I am not. So psychoanalysts, usually we don't use medications because we 
take more time to be with the patient, interacting with them, and trying to listen the unconscious factors that intervene in the disease. And the second thing that maybe they considered in the Sigourney Award is that uh, I teach at the university, so I uh, train new generations of psychologists and doctors to work together. For example, my chair is with pupils of psychology that are ending their career. But in medicine, my chair is with pupils that are starting their career. So I do practice uh, joining them together, uh, discussing case, clinical cases. And in this way, I avoid the arrogancy that usually the students of medicine have considering themselves superior to the psychology students because the psychology students are ending their career. So they feel more comfortable with the ideas of psychology and they uh, have studied more. And the, the students of medicine are very young. They are not uh, yet uh, covered with the arrogancy or the superiority that usually doctors feel. So they interact in very spontaneous way and it's a very, um, very good training for the students to work together from the different, completely different point of view and epistemology. I wanted to say that. Yeah, and if I can add to that, because you have also a, a, a lot of international contacts and you do have uh, an impact uh, internationally as well. And this this prize is uh, the it's a nonprofit organization that looks at international uh, other countries as well. So maybe we can also mention like outside of uh, Argentina, what are your influences across the world in, in various other countries as well? Yes, I'm teaching. Uh, I started first teaching in some Latin American countries, but once I started to give a, all a section of psychosomatics in the Universidad Complutense de Madrid in Spain. And one Spanish uh, colleague uh, contacted me with a group that studied psych psychoanalytic psychosomatics in Moscow. And uh, I, I've been teaching to psychoanalysts in Russia from five years and, and still I, I give them supervisions, classes, courses. And then I belong to some societies because there are a lot of world local societies of psychodermatology. There is a Spanish one, a Japanese one. In the United States, there is a, a association of psychocutaneous medicine. Um, um, there is one European Society for Dermatology and, Psycho and Psychiatry, and I was invited as a lecturer in these societies in different countries. So this in the field of psychodermatology. And as a psychoanalyst, I gave uh, conferences and so on about the same subject, but towards uh, psychoanalysts, not dermatologists. And this happened in Italy or in Sydney, in Australia, 
or, or even in a World Congress of Dermatology, they did a symposium on psychodermatology in South Korea, and I was a representative of the psychodermatology in Latin America, and uh, well, uh, gave a lecture together with an European one, an Asian one, and one from each continent. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful experience. You're a man. Of I learned many hats. a lot. Also, hey, what? A man of many hats. So you put on different hats, and then yes, yes, yes. I find it fascinating. Yes. But I learned a lot because it opens your head because mm -hmm. you listen how they work in, in other continent or in other hospitals or from different point of view. Usually, they are not psychoanalysts. That's why in the Sigourney Award, they were so interested in my work because um, I consider that I help psychoanalysis to be promoted again in this field, uh, in the medical field. Mm -hmm. And it is absolutely useful. I mean, I, I had issues with blood pressure, and so I did not take medication, but using my own uh, ideas and my own studies, my own work with myself and using psychoanalysis, I have come to control that. And it is, again, in many ways, uh, psychosomatic, as you would say. And so mm -hmm. impressed my medical doctor said, well, how did you do it? How did you? <laughs> and, and I think that is important that people know that and to, 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 to get rid of some of the preconceptions, these judgments that they have about psychoanalysis. And that's not just patients. That's also the doctors, medical doctors. That is um, also psychologists as well. And some people who frown on I think we should all embrace it because of all the benefits it brings to, to everyone exactly. it can bring. And also internationally, it's not just a specific group of people. Anyone can benefit from it. Yes. And, and another prejudice is that cons is considering psychoanalysis only the four times a week in a couch, uh, very expensive. No, but it's like we have a psychoanalytic thought that means a special way to elaborate, to think, to work through, to think about the human problems and diseases. And then having this um, tool, you can do different kinds of psychoanalytically oriented psychotherapies adapted to everyone. For example, with skin patients, I usually don't start with the couch because they need to see, because they are uh, swimming this channel all the time. Then I, they learn to have alternative channels to swim or to, to go through. And then well, we decide if we continue with the couch or not. Mm -hmm. But considering always that emotions play an important role, that uh, there are concepts that are very useful, for example, narcissism, unconscious, etc. Uh, and psychoanalysis is, Freud started inventing psychoanalysis, talking with, for example, with a woman when they were climbing a hill, a mountain, a short mountain, a hill. 
and talking while they were doing this kind of tourism, he interpreted her hysterical symptoms and she uh, get rid of them. She got rid of them. Yeah, and, and, and the power of the unconscious too. And I, I see in, in CBT, they are moving a little bit in that direction of embracing some of these ideas because the science has proven it. Neuroscience has, has proven that there is an element there that is could be the unconscious and that has a direct impact on, on how we live, how we think, how we feel. And the importance again of our past and of our childhood, and it opened eyes, my eyes to that, and it opened like many pathways, and that's why um, I'm not the same person when I, uh, after now I've gone through all these changes, uh, self discovery that I've been through. And um, thank you so much for your for your wonderful work that you do. Thank you so much for your insights. Uh, a well deserved congrats and well deserved uh, recipient of the Sigourney thank Award. You. It's been fascinating to talk to you. We could talk for hours, but um, we need to end at some point. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for being on my show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much.